I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that slow walks through Dante's masterwork comedy. I just want to take a minute and say, can you imagine the luxury of this? The overwhelming luxury of being able to just slow walk through the comedy. It's hard to even get your brain. Around it. Well, at least it's hard to get my brain around it. We have come a long way through Inferno, all the way to the opening of Canto 29, 29 of 34. We're going to be in the first 36 lines. If you remember, we have been among the schismatics and those who throw scandal, that is, stumbling blocks, in the way of the faithful. We have seen many of them, Mohammed, his son-in-law Ali, a rather obscure figure, Pierre da Medicina. We've seen Curio from the old Roman Republic days. We've seen Mosca from the mm, fairly recent Florentine Civil War days. We've seen a Provençal poet, and that Provençal poet has even given us a rationale for the pit, for himself, for Inferno, for comedy. Well, a rationale for something, the contrapasso. We discussed all that in the last episode of this podcast, and now we're moving on, you would think, from the ninth to the tenth of the evil pouches, but you would be wrong. Here's the passage, lines 1 through 36 in my English translation. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com. You can read along or drop a comment there. The hordes of people with so many weird wounds had so besotted my own lantern-like eyes that I yearned to stick around and weep. But Virgil said to me, What are you still looking at? Why is your gaze still stuck down here on the sad, hacked-up shades? You didn't behave like this at any other pouch. Consider this. If you believe you can count these souls, this valley goes around for 22 miles. What's more, the moon is already below our feet. There's little left of the time that was granted to us, and there's a lot more to see that you haven't yet seen. If you'd considered, I replied right away, the reason I wanted to gawk a bit, perhaps you might have let me stick around a little longer. My guide had already taken off, and I was bringing up the rear, still intent on my answer. So I said, down in that slit where I fixed my eyes just now, I believe that a spirit of my own blood cried out for the shame that costs him a lot down here. At that, my master said, don't let your thoughts founder on that shore any longer because of him. Pay attention to something else. And leave him be, because I, too, saw him at the foot of the bridge, pointing at you and threatening with his finger. I heard them call him Jerry Del Bello. You were then so fully enthralled with the guy who used to hold Hotefort that you didn't look over there before he took off. Oh, my God. It was because the vendetta against his violent death... I said, has not yet been satisfied by any who partake in the shame of it that he's become so apoplectic. That's why he went away without speaking to me, at least so I think, and this makes me feel even more compassion for him. 
So we weren't done with the schismatics. So there was one more, Jerry Delbello, who we will talk much about in this episode of the podcast. This is going to be a rather fractured episode, and I want to go in a lot of different directions at once. I want to talk about Canto 29 as a whole, even though we haven't gotten to it as a whole. I want to talk about some firsts in this passage. I want to talk about some repeats in this passage. I want to talk about Virgil in the passage. Of course, we want to talk about who this Jerry Del Bello is. And then we want to end on the famous, no, more like infamous, last six lines of this passage, which are a crux for the poem and have caused, oh, I don't know what, gallons of ink to be spilt in their interpretation. Let's start out by just talking about the canto as a whole. Canto 29 is a fractured canto, and you can already tell that. We seemed to have come to an end of the schismatics and their like in the last canto, Canto 28, with Bertrand de Born and his whole discussion of Contrapasso and carrying his head like a lantern. And yet here we are in holdover material, held over for the first 36 lines, this 10th Malabolge. It doesn't really start till the 37th line of this canto. And then it fractures into some really wild stuff. I don't want to tell you the plot right now, but I will tell you that it devolves into some weirdly low and coarse comedy and commentary and almost gossip. We don't want to talk quite yet about what's in the 10th pit, but I just want to tell you that Canto 29 is tough because it is fractured in various ways. And this passage is particularly tough because, as I've already said to you, it ends in this famous crux about feeling compassion or pio is the word in the medieval Florentine, feeling compassion, feeling pity for one of the damned. There are other reasons why Canto 29 is a difficult canto. Virgil's character seems compromised or in flux. Maybe you could even hear it here. Yes, Virgil gives a reprimand to the pilgrim, but then Virgil seems to miss some things and point some things out. It's kind of weird as personality slips around a little. We'll talk about why that is in a minute. He doesn't seem the master poetic father uh, that he had been in previous moments in comedy. We'll talk much more about that. And without a doubt, as I've already said, Canto 28 did seem to come to a firm conclusion on that word contrapasso. I mean, we seem to just reach this finality in which we not only summed up the eighth of the evil pouches, we may have begun gone to sum up Inferno as a whole. It had a definite end, and it was so nicely balanced, Canto 28 was, with Mohammed and Bertrand de Born as these big figures on either end of it, and then with lesser figures uh, uh, kind of inside of them, inside of their parentheses. We had the Pierre de Medicina figure, and we had Mosca, both who are kind of, well, I don't want to say they're minor, but lesser figures than these two giant figures on either end. And then at the very center of the canto, we had the silent Curio who couldn't speak and Pierre spoke for him. The central figure was silent and two bracketing him were two uh, more minor figures and then two major giant figures standing on either side in the canto. I mean, it just all seems so perfect. 
And yet here's a coda. I wanted to say one thing about this or one more thing about this before we pass on to the lines themselves. And that is Dante has this way, I've told you this again and again and again, of setting us up for what's ahead. And while I don't want to get too far into what's ahead, we are approaching the end of the eighth circle of fraud. And we are going to soon enough enter the ninth and last circle of hell. And in the ninth and last circle of hell, there are not easy demarcations. There are four subsets inside that circle, the ninth circle, just as there are 10 subsets in this circle. But the four subsets in the ninth circle are kind of difficult to differentiate. And it's hard to know when you pass boundaries. Boundaries themselves seem to have evaporated in the ninth circle. It may be that Dante is slowly cueing us up to this idea that the very borders of meaning, the borders of poetry, the borders of the form itself are starting to collapse in anticipation of their full collapse in the ninth of the circles of hell. But that's ahead of us, and that's saying more than we might know just reading this canto. Let's look at this weird coda passage to the ninth of the evil pouches in the eighth circle of fraud. Let's start out by talking about some firsts in this passage. There are temporal and spatial markers here that are the firsts we've ever seen. Inside the passage itself, starting at line seven, Virgil, after he has, uh, what do I want to say, reprimanded our poor pilgrim for gawking at the people hacked up, the schismatics who were all cloven into pieces, after he, he reprimands him for that, he says, you didn't behave like this at any other pouch. Consider this, if you believe you can count these souls, is that what Dante's doing? I'm not sure. Dante says he's going to stick around and weep. Virgil snarkily says, if you think you can count these souls, this is one of these weird slips in Virgil's character. So Virgil can't read Dante's mind, but Virgil used to be a mind reader. Here, he posits a motive for the pilgrim that is not exactly the pilgrim's motive, or not even close to the pilgrim's motive, and then he answers it. If you believe you can count these souls, so Virgil alleges the motivation for the delay, then Virgil gives the answer. This this valley goes around for 22 miles. This is a very big first for us. 22 miles. If you remember your high school geometry, you should. You know, see, it's going to come in handy. Remember all that bit about, oh, who's ever going to use geometry? Well, well, any architect, any engineer, and now we are in Dante. If you remember your high school geometry, the ratio of the circumference in a circle is 22 over 7. Remember pi r squared? If you if you try to work out the fraction 22 sevenths, 22 divided by 7, you're going to generate the number pi, the irrational number. And Dante seems to know this. It seems very coy here to give the perfect circumference of the circle in this valley here that leads us to pi, that leads us to the whole pi r squared, and all those geometrical 
theorems that we had to learn back in high school geometry. We should also note that hell is big. We are way down here, way, way down in hell. We are in here, that ninth of the evil pouches of the eighth circle of fraud and the circle is still 22 miles around imagine how big the circle of lust is imagine how big the circle of gluttony is soon enough we're going to actually find out the distance of the next pouch around and then we're going to have a ratio and then we're really going to go to town and then you're going to realize how incredibly giant this whole place is. Okay, so Virgil says it goes around 22 miles, and what's more, the moon is already below our feet. Virgil is continuing to tell time not by the sun, but by the moon. And the last time Virgil brought this up was in Canto 20. He brought it up there with the end of the fortune tellers, and at that point, the moon was in a spot that we could kind of claim, well, it was uh, moving on toward kind of toward morning i suppose long in there um, and the moon was up yet still in the sky and now if the moon is below their feet it must be near noon up on the surface. There's been a lot of calculation about this. Most critics seem to land on the idea it's about 1 p.m. or 1.30 p.m. <laughs> but believe me, they fight each other like dogs over this, whether it's 12.30 or 1 or 1.30 or, <laughs> or 2 o'clock. But let's just say it must be early afternoon up above if the moon is down below their feet. And here's another first. There's little left of the time that was granted to us, Virgil says. This is the first time we've been told that the journey has an allotted time period, that there is a certain amount of time that has been given to them for this entire walk across hell. We probably assume that, but we've never actually been told it up front. Lots of firsts in this passage, spatial firsts, temporal firsts. We can kind of tell the time where we are in terms of the days as the journey progresses. And also the first notion that they've been given a set time limit and they've got to complete this in a set amount of time. Now let's look to the opening lines and also some repeats in the passage. The passage starts, the hordes of people with so many weird wounds had so besotted my own lantern-like eyes. And let me tell you that I had to jump through some English hoops to translate that. What the Florentine says is, Le luce mie, uh, my lanterns, my lights. It means eyes, and Dante has used this phrase before to mean eyes. Yet, yeah, this is clearly, for me, a callback to Bertrand de Born, who's carrying his head like a lantern, that Dante is using his lights to see the the hacked up souls in the pit below. Oh, I feel Bertrand right there. So the tie back 
to the previous passage is tight. Thus, the gap between Canto 28 and 29 is not very big. And Virgil says at this point, why, what, are you, what are you still looking at? Why is your gaze still stuck down there on the sad sack shades? This is reminiscent of a moment again with the fortune tellers in Canto 20, in which Virgil makes a similar reprimand. And I want to read this to you because we're going to come back to this. Dante is standing there watching the fortune tellers. And if you remember, they have their heads turned around on their bodies backwards. And they're walking with their heads turned around toward their backs so that their tears fall down their backs and onto their butts. Dante, he starts to cry and lean against the stones of the hard ridge. Now, Dante wants to stick around here and weep. I don't know that he's weeping, but he yearns to do it. In Canto 20, he's clearly weeping. I'm at line 25, and I'm going to go about six lines in. Why indeed did I cry leaning against one of the stones of the hard ridge, which is why my escort said to me, are you still just another fool among so many? In this place, pity is still alive and well when it is dead as a doornail. Can any guy be less pious than the one who brings such passion to divine judgment? And we talked about this back in Canto 20, that Virgil seems to be arguing that you can't feel any pity for the damned. <laughs> How does this bit passage end? Mm, makes me feel even more Heal, compassion, pity for him. Nonetheless, let's just just say there's a callback here to Canto 20 and the fortune tellers where Virgil at that point reprimands the pilgrim for crying and here reprimands the pilgrim for delaying and perhaps wanting to cry. It's a reminiscent passage, except there are differences. In this passage in Canto 29 that we're on, the pilgrim talks back. The pilgrim basically smacks right back at Virgil and says, hey, if you give me a minute, I'll tell you why I'm still standing here, <laughs> which is rather a nice bit of back and forth between the pilgrim and Virgil. Two, here's a big change. I've already brought it up once, but I'm going to bring it up again. Virgil is not a mind reader. What are you looking at? Why is your gaze still stuck down here on the sad, hacked up shades? And then Dante says, well, maybe I was looking around for one of my kin. And Virgil says, oh, I did see him. But Virgil didn't know that. So Virgil is not a mind reader. And there's another callback here. Remember when Ferenata arises in Canto 10? When Ferenata comes up out of that tomb, Virgil sees Ferenata first and shakes the... <laughs> and turns him around and says, oh my God, look, Farinata rising from the tomb, mind you. That moment in which Virgil sees a sinner before the pilgrim does is again reminiscent of this passage, but with major differences. Here too, apparently Virgil has seen a sinner, this time Jerry Del Bello, before the pilgrim ever sees him. And in fact, the pilgrim never officially lays eyes on Jerry Del Bello. There are important echoes of the moment with Ferranata, but huge differences. There, Virgil seems to want the pilgrim to pay attention to the sinner Ferranata. Here, 
Virgil seems to almost dismiss the sinner. I mean, he says, don't let your thoughts founder on that shore as if it's a ship coming up on shore and foundering. Founder on that shore any longer because of him. Pay attention to something else <laughs> leave him be. This is the moment in which Virgil turns into my mother. You know, don't think about negative things, dear. Just think about happy thoughts. <laughs> Virgil has fully become my mom, my, my good Protestant Southern U.S. mom. Virgil has a completely different reaction here, a repressive reaction as opposed to an ex exhibitory or an exhibitionist reaction in the Farinata sequence. There are all kinds of callbacks going on here to other passages inside of Inferno, which tells us that this coda stuck into Canto 29 is not somehow here by mistake, but is connected deeply to the passages that came before amongst the schismatics because of the lantern-like eyes, connected to other moments between the pilgrim and Virgil, and perhaps indicates to us a changing relationship between the two of them. Okay, let's talk before we continue on in the passage about this figure, Jerry Del Bello, who Virgil has seen, but the pilgrim was looking for, but didn't see. This is Ruggieri del Bello dei Alighieri. This is the first member of Dante's family we have seen in comedy. This person, Jerry del Bello, as his nickname is given here, not his more formal name, he is Dante's first cousin once removed, as we would say in English. In other words, he's Dante's father's first cousin cousin. There is much debate in the early commentary about him. We do have historical records of his dealings in 1269, 1274, and even in 1280. He was in trouble with the law several times, so we know he was a bit of a troublemaker. Some say he was killed ultimately by the Guelphs of Bologna, other early commentators say that he was killed by the Sacchetti family of Florence. In fact, Dante's own son, Pietro di Dante, cites the Sacchetti family as the source of Jerry Bello's death. We know he must have been killed by someone in a family feud because Dante the Pilgrim here says his violent death is still not avenged. The vendetta hasn't been satisfied for this violent death. We also know that the Alighieri and the Sacchetti families came to a brokered peace in 1342, um, several years, what is that, about uh, two decades after Dante's death. An early commentator, Jacopo della Lana or Iacomo della Lana, different names, <laughs> medieval spelling is always difficult. He wrote his commentary in 1324, just a couple years after Dante had died, and he claimed that this Jerry de Bello was a counterfeiter, and that not only had he been a troublemaker and sowing schism and maybe doing things to other families to cause political strife, which is why he was murdered in a family vendetta, but that he was also a counterfeiter. And that's why, according to Lana, he's placed here. That is, he's placed out of the canto of the schismatics and those who throw scandal in the path of the believers, and yet in 
This canto, which starts at, now you're going to know, starts the canto of the falsifiers who will include those who counterfeit money. The late, the unfortunately late Dantista at Dartmouth, Lawrence Hooper, who died far, far, far too young, claimed that uh, Lana's solution here is a very elegant solution to Jerry DeBello's place inside of comedy. I don't actually buy that it's an elegant solution. It sounds to me like Lana is positioning Jerry DiBello here in order to uh, justify his position in the 29th canto between the schismatics and the falsifiers. It sounds like it's a backwards rationale. In other words, I see him here. Oh, well, maybe he was a counterfeiter. Oh, maybe that's why he's here. That's what it sounds like to me. And the early commentators are often guilty of this kind of thing. I don't mean to knock Cooper stance that this is an elegant uh, solution for Jerry's place here, but it doesn't seem so elegant to me because it's just difficult. Bertrand de Born brought the thing to a close. We seem to just have so wonderfully finished the schismatics, and yet we come out with this coda that ends with this crux about feeling compassion for the damned, and whoa, it's difficult. Maybe it's not quite as difficult as first glance if we know something about the Aeneid. Lino Pertile, who is the eminent Dantista at Harvard, claims that this passage is full of references to the moment in the Aeneid in which Aeneas in the underworld meets Dido, his former lover, who had thrown herself up on the funeral pyre and burned herself to death because of her love for Aeneas, who is sailing off on his mission. They do meet in the underworld in Book 6, lines 450 to about 476. Dido is completely silent, but she's weeping. Pertile's argument, the Harvard Dantista's argument, is that there are many words used in the Aeneid that are reflected inside this passage. Even more, there is one weird Latinism. When Dante replies to Virgil, Dante says, if you'd considered the reason I wanted to gawk a bit, perhaps you might let me stick around a little longer. This is a very strange Latinate construction inside of comedy that is written in the common Florentine tongue. It's using the Latin verb dimetere, which means to permit or to allow. And this same word is used by Virgil in the Aeneid passage about Dido. And so Pertile's argument here is that with all of these echoes running around, weeping, silence, um, the, the Latinate words, all of these echoes running inside the passage, uh, deep connections, Aeneas and Dido, a love connection, here a family blood connection. With all that's running around, we should understand that in the same way that Aeneas cannot stop and show much sympathy for the crying Dido, or he feels the loss, but still and nonetheless, he goes on because his mission to found Rome is divinely sanctioned in the same way we should see this working. That is, the pilgrim here, even though he feels pity, 
he has to complete the journey. And this is also then why, using Pertile's argument, this is why Virgil then brings up the idea that they have time granted to them for the first time. That is, all of this is pointing to a divine sanctioning of the journey itself. Now, listen, <laughs> you know I'm going to go crazy right here. And you know I'm going to tell you how can a fictional journey be divinely sanctioned. I'm just telling you, I think Pertile is right. And I think it is the logic of the poem comedy. And I think it's what Dante wants us desperately to believe that this all really happened, that this all really took place, and furthermore, this is all completely divinely <laughs> sanctioned. I'm feeling the Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the author behind the curtain. He is unimportant. I'm feeling the Wizard of Oz here that, that there is a poet sitting right there, Dante, behind the curtain. But listen, you're just supposed to pay attention to the pilgrim as a reality claim for the journey itself. And I think I'm pushing Pertile's argument too far. Well, I'm too far. I'm pushing it farther than he does. But I wonder if that's not all running underneath this passage. But the most important thing running underneath it is the notion of vendetta. So let's turn to the very end and the difficult crux. Dante says, oh my God, it was because the vendetta against his violent death has not yet been satisfied by any who partake in the shame of it that he's become so apoplectic. He was apparently gesturing. We guess it must be some kind of vulgar gesture. He was trying to get the pilgrim's attention. Perhaps he can't speak like Curio. It's interesting that we don't know what Jerry Del Bello's wounds are. We don't know how he's hacked apart in the pit. All of that is left out in favor of moving toward this thematic of vendetta. And this strikes me as crucial to the poem itself. Let me go back in the passage and say that Dante says, down in that slit where I fixed my eyes just now, I believe that a spirit of my own blood cried out for the shame that costs him a lot down here. Note the thing that characterizes the two of them is their blood connection. And notice that the ninth of the evil pouches is incredibly bloody. This is one of the bloodiest spots in all of Inferno, in which these people are hacked up by that demon with the sword as they make their way around the, the circle. Notice also the materiality of the familial claim. It's based on blood, not on belief, not on marriage, not on ideals, but on blood. And notice, too, the materiality of the souls in hell. Once again, blood, a spirit of my own blood, cried out for the shame that costs him a lot down here. The materiality seems incredibly important, and in any situation of vendetta, it is. Because you are going to take someone and you are going to pull off a familial justice against them. This is an endemic problem in central Italy in Dante's day. And we don't have to look anywhere else except to Brunetta Latini. Both in the Tresor and in the Tesseretto, Brunetto stipulates that private revenge 
is the duty of noble families. For Dante, then, it is part of his familial duty to satisfy the vendetta. And furthermore, if you don't satisfy the vendetta, then you are calling the nobility of your family into question. Noble families have the right to settle their own scores. I've been calling your attention to Vendetta throughout comedy, and I just want to remind you of places where we've run across this idea of Vendetta. Way back in Canto 7, when they meet Plutus, and Plutus is standing there clucking away with Papa Satan, Papa Satan, Alepe, that whole bit that he does, the... the chicken Plutus, before they get to the avaricious and Virgil kind of deflates him, shut up, cursed wolf, let the rage inside you devour you. Then notice the next words in the passage in the opening of Canto 7. This trip to the depths is not without a cause. It's willed on high where Michael made his vendetta against the prideful blitz. Michael made a vendetta. The archangel Michael is seen as bringing some kind of vendetta, family justice. That's one of the first times vendetta has come out, but it's come up in other spots. In Canto 11, when they stop and have to sit down because the smell of lower hell is so bad, and Virgil spends the Canto essentially mapping out hell itself at lines 88 through 90 of Canto 11, the term vendetta comes up again. Virgil is trying to explain the difference between malice and incontinence and insane bestiality, how incontinence offends God less. If you reason well through this line of thought, Virgil says, and bring back to your mind those who are punished there outside of these fortifications, the incontinent, that is the lustful and the gluttons and the avaricious, you'll surely see why those are put aside from these other sinners and why the divine vendetta strikes them less cruelly than those below. There's another moment in which vendetta came up in the poem, and it is God's right to carry out the vendetta. Or if we go to Canto 12, This is when they have found the centaurs and they're going to get carried around the boiling river of blood. Virgil elbows the pilgrim and says, that's Nessus at lines 67 through 69, who died because of the beautiful Dianyra and so made of himself his own vendetta. Remember, he then dies and they make a cloak out of him, which robs Hercules of his powers. That bit is all part of a vendetta strategy against Hercules that the centaurs are now part of down here in hell. Or if we go out to Canto 14 and we look at Capaneus stretched out on the sands and Caponeus is there kind of laughing at God. How dare you think you can even punish me as he did on the walls of Thebes at lines 58 through 60 again, just as he did. Caponeus says, Zeus did, that is, at the Battle of Phlegry. He shoots at me with all his power. He still won't be able to make a happy vendetta out of it. Oh, he's 
torment. He's torturing God. He's basically saying, no matter how hard you try, God, you can't bring a vendetta against me. Meanwhile, he's stretched out on the sands and he's burning up to death. These passages have come up again and again throughout comedy, this vendetta. And I've been calling your attention to it until we get here. Now, it is true the word vendetta here in this passage is a verbal. It's not the noun. It's a verbal being used. But the concept is being brought up. And I think it's crucial because I think this brings us to the first resolution of the vendetta theme. Let me explain. Dante is in exile, on the run, partly through vendetta. His own family, as here, Jerry Del Bello, have been subjected to personal vengeance by other families, vengeance that has to be solved through the vendetta. I think that this passage brings us up to the first moment in which Dante himself turns away from vendetta and turns toward compassion. Dante, for my reading of this passage, feels pio. He feels pity, compassion for this figure. This word vendetta was even used in the Ulysses section about a vendetta against Ulysses because of what he had done again and again in the poem. When the word has been used in relationship to God, it seems to be God's prerogative. But when it has been used for people, Capaneus or Ulysses, there has been social civil turbulence, the siege of Thebes for gosh sake, or Ulysses drowning all his crew members. It seems as if when the word vendetta gets put into the human realm, there has all along been some kind of terrible problem that erupts, some kind of social unrest, some kind of huge genocidal campaign like the Siege of Thebes. It's never come to any good ends, as opposed to when it keeps being referred to God, as if God has the right of vendetta. If God has the right of vendetta, here's a puzzler for you. How do you keep the nobility of your family intact? Let me tell you that this is highly debated. Many eminent Dantistas, far more eminent than I, believe that the pity here is that there has been no fulfillment of the vendetta and that what Dante is essentially saying is, I feel sorry for him because there's no one up there to continue the blood feud that needs to happen to maintain the nobility of our families. That could be a good reading of the crux at the end of the passage, but I think not. And I would argue it goes back to that reference to Canto 20, where Virgil reprimands Dante for looking at the fortune tellers and how dare you feel pity on the damned. I would argue that there is a way to preserve your humanity even in the depths of hell. And Canto 29 is about preserving humanity. And the first watermark of this is solving the vendetta problem that plagues Dante's own life by turning away from it and toward the, I would say, humanistic, Dante would say, Christian virtue 
of compassion. I would even tell you that there is a character development that has gone on around us. In the beginning of the 28th canto, we saw the cost of war. We saw all those bodies hacked apart. Then we saw actual souls hacked apart like Mohammed and Pierre da Medicina. Inside of all of that, Dante met Mosca, who started the Florentine Civil War, and Dante wished death on Mosca's entire family, thereby wishing vendetta against him. And Bertrand de Born walked along and said, essentially by his very presence, don't forget, your words have effects. They have tremendous effects on people, tremendous effects even on the politics. Best then, this is how I read Bertrand de Born's bit in the poem, best then not to write about worldly power structures, but to write about divine power structures. After all, according to Deuteronomy 32.35 and Romans 12.19, vengeance is God's, or vengeance is mine, as the text says, saith the Lord. But in both cases, vengeance is God's. Schism is finally brought to its knees by the notion of compassion, by the notion in which even Virgil's tutelage falls apart about don't feel pity on the damned. You know what? If you don't feel pity on the damned, you're going to start to lose even your own humanity. Now, let me tell you one of the reasons this is a giant crux inside of Inferno. Because so many want to read Inferno as a linear progression. They want to see the pilgrim becoming less and less sympathetic toward the damned and more and more aligned with God's viewpoint. And perhaps we can see that. They would go back to Filippo Argenti in sticks and the pilgrim wishing to see Filippo Argenti ripped apart in sticks and it happening and Virgil embracing the pilgrim and praising him for wanting to see Filippo Argenti hacked apart. We, they would go back to Canto 20 and Virgil reprimanding Dante for crying at the dam and saying, you know, hey, only a fool feels pity in the face of divine justice. But this passage is different and it breaks the linearity. And this is why it causes so many problems for so many commentators. They want a linear character progression. I think I can see a linear character progression from the cost of war to rage to the debt of poetry to the turning away from rage, as I tried to outline for you. But also, I would say that that is a linear progression over just a canto and so many more lines. The overall linearity of Inferno is not necessarily supported by the text, dare I say it. We're dealing with a medieval text. The, the Age of Enlightenment didn't do wonders for our notion of complexity. Instead, it made us demand in a rationalistic world for a linear development. And I don't think you can see that here. I think, in fact, you can see that Dante, the poet, may be pushing us to understand that there is a way that by viewing the damned in hell, you can lose your humanity. You have to still hold on to the idea. Now, this is Dante. 
I think, you have to still hold on to the belief that this is God's will. And yet at the same time, you yourself have to understand that it's painful and awful. And your understanding that it's painful and awful doesn't negate the fact that it's God's will. It preserves, however, your humanity. And in fact, going forward in Canto 29, we're going to find all kinds of ways to preserve humanity, even here in the far depths of hell. Let me just read the passage one more time. No funny voices, no sound effects, no nothing. Try to put the thing back together just so you hear it as one (laughs) linear progression. The hordes of people with so many weird wounds had so besotted my own lantern-like eyes that I yearned to stick around and weep. But Virgil said to me, what are you looking at? Why is your gaze still stuck down here on the sad, hacked-up shades? You didn't behave like this at any other pouch. Consider this. If you believe you can count these souls, this valley goes around for 22 miles. What's more, the moon is already below our feet. There's little left of the time that was granted to us. And there's a lot more to see that you haven't yet seen. If you'd considered, I replied right away, the reason I wanted to gawk a bit, perhaps you might have let me stick around a little longer. My guide had already taken off, and I was bringing up the rear, still intent on my answer. So I added, down in that slit where I fixed my eyes just now, I believe that a spirit of my own blood cried out for the shame that costs him a lot down here. At that, my master said, don't let your thoughts founder on that shore any longer because of him. Pay attention to something else and leave him be, because I too saw him at the foot of the bridge, pointing at you and threatening with his finger. I heard them call him Jerry Del Bello. You were then so fully enthralled with the guy who used to hold Hotefort that you didn't look over there before he took off. Oh, my guide! it was because the vendetta against his violent death, I said, has not yet been satisfied by any who partake in the shame of it that he's become so apoplectic. That's why he went away without speaking to me, at least so I think. And this makes me feel even more compassion for him. You've got to subscribe to this podcast. You've got to be a part of the journey. I encourage you to give me a rating on whatever platform you're listening to this on, especially Audible or Apple platforms. A rating would do fabulous. And just a comment like, really enjoying it, having a lot of fun. That would make a whole world of difference to me. I hope you're having fun. I am. This was a hard passage, and it was diff- tough to get through because I broke it all apart and then didn't really put it back together except to the last second when I read it. So I hope that you will think more about it. Let me tell you those last six lines of this passage. They have bedeviled so many Dantistas, including me. And while I have told you my solution, it is not the final solution to this problem of feeling pity for the damned. I'll see you next time on the next Walking with Dante.